Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 43. Today we'll be reading Book 10, chapters 38 through 43 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So as we have said, he's making a kind of general examination of conscience, and uh, here he's going to wrap it up, and then he's going to turn to a profession of belief in Christ. And you might think to yourself, aha, now for something new. But really, you know, it's, he's been discussing this with Christ the whole time. And so to sum up his confession— that is to say, his confession of sin, with a kind of profession of belief in Christ, which is to say a confession of belief in Christ, makes eminent sense. Because whenever we're seeking in our own heart of hearts to root out sin and vice, we're always doing so in the presence of the Lord and by his grace. So it's awesome. Let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 38. I am poor and needy, though I am better while I secretly groan against myself in displeasure and seek your mercy, until my defects might be repaired and my state of soul brought to perfection, all the way up to that peace which the eye of the proud does not know. Yet the word which comes forth from the mouth and deeds which are known to men bring with them a most dangerous temptation through the love of praise, which solicits and collects applause from men in order to establish a kind of personal superiority. Even when it is reproached by myself and in myself, it tempts precisely because it had been reproached, and it often takes even vainer glory in its very scorn for vainglory. And thus, it no longer is a kind of scorn for the very vainglory in which it glories, for it does not truly express scorn when it takes such glory. Chapter 39. Within us, yes, also within us, there is another evil arising from a similar temptation by which men become vain, remaining pleased with themselves because of what they themselves are, though they neither please others nor bring displeasure to them, nor really even care to bring pleasure to them. But being pleased with themselves, such people bring much displeasure to you, not only by taking pleasure in things that are not good as though they were good, but also by taking pleasure in your good things as though they were their own. Or even if they take pleasure in them as though they were yours, they judge that they have them based upon their own merits. Or even if they take pleasure in them as coming from your grace, nonetheless they do not do so with fraternal rejoicing, but instead jealously guard it from others. In all these, in similar perils and travails, you see the trembling of my heart, and I feel that my wounds are cured by you rather than inflicted by me. Chapter 40 
Where have you not walked with me, O truth, teaching me what to beware of and what to desire when I referred to you the things I have seen here below and consulted with you about them? With my external senses, I have surveyed the world to the degree that I can and have observed the life that my body has for me, as well as my very senses themselves. From there, I entered into the recesses of my memory, those manifold and spacious chambers that are furnished with countless plenty. There, I considered this and became frightened, for I could discern none of these things without you and found none of them to be you. Nor was I myself you, I who discovered all these things, who went over them all and labored to distinguish and value all of them in accord with their dignity, taking in some of them on the reporting of my senses, questioning others that I felt to be mingled with myself, counting and distinguishing the very reporters themselves, and within the spacious treasury of my memory, turning over some things, storing others, and drawing out yet others. No, when I did this, I was not you either. That is, the power by which I did it was not you either, for you are the abiding light that I consulted regarding all these things, asking whether they existed or what they are or how they are to be valued. I heard you directing and commanding me. Indeed, often do I hear you doing this, and I delight in it. Yes, to the degree that I might be free from necessary duties, I turn to this pleasure. Nor in all these things that I reflect on while consulting you can I find any safe harbor for my soul except in you, where my scattered self might be gathered together with no part of me departing from you. And sometimes you admit into the depths of my soul an unexpected affection, rising to an inexpressible sweetness, and if it were brought to perfection in me, I do not know what of it would not belong to the world to come. But miserably weighed down, I sink back into these lower things and am swept away by former habits and am held bound. How profusely do I weep over this, yet how tightly bound do I remain? So greatly does the burden of bad habit weigh us down. Here I can stay, but do not wish to, and there I wish to be, but cannot, and in both ways am I miserable. Chapter 41 Thus I have considered the sickness of my sins in that threefold concupiscence, and have called upon your right hand for help. For with a wounded heart I have beheld your splendor, and stricken back, I said, Who can reach that place? I am cast away from the sight of your eyes. You are the truth who presides over all things, but I, in my greed, did not indeed wish to depart from you, though I wished to possess you alongside a lie, just as no man wishes to speak so falsely that he himself would be ignorant of the truth. So then I lost you because you do not deign to be possessed alongside a lie. Chapter 42 Whom could I find to reconcile myself to you? Was I to have recourse to angels? By means of what prayers? By means of what sacraments? Many who strive to return to you and are unable to do so by themselves have, as I heard, tried this and have fallen into desire for curious visions and are judged worthy to be deluded. For exalted minds sought you through prideful learning, puffing out their breasts rather than beating them, and so, with their very heart's agreement, they drew unto themselves the princes of the air, those fellow conspirators in their pride, by whom, through magical influences, they were themselves deceived, seeking a mediator by which to be purged, though there was none to be found there. For it was the devil transforming himself into an angel of light, and proud flesh was itself greatly enticed by the fact that he had no fleshly body. For they were mortal and sinners, but you, Lord, to whom they sought to be reconciled, are immortal and sinless. But a mediator between God and man must have something like unto God and something like unto men, lest, being only like unto man, he would be far from God, or being only like unto God, he would be too unlike man, thus not being a mediator." Therefore, that deceitful mediator in whom, through your secret judgments, pride deserved to be mocked, had one thing in common with man, namely sin, whereas he would seem to have something in common with God, for he declared himself to be immortal since he was not clothed with fleshly mortality. 
But since the wages of sin is death, he also has in common with men the same thing that makes him deserving of condemnation to death. Chapter 43 However, the true mediator, whom in your secret mercy you have shown to be humble, sending him so that by his example they might also learn the same humility, he who is the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, appeared between mortal sinners and the immortal just one, mortal with men just before God. Since the wages of righteousness is life and peace, he, by a righteousness that is joined to God, makes void the death of sinners through the death that he willed to share with them. Hence, he was revealed to the saints of old, so that they might be saved through faith in his passion to come, as we are saved through faith in it now that it has been accomplished. For as man he was mediator, but as word he was not in the middle between God and man, for he was thus equal to God, indeed God with God, together one God. How greatly have you loved us, O good Father, who did not spare your only Son, but rather delivered him up for us who are ungodly. O how you have loved us, for whom he that thought it no robbery to be counted equal to you was made subject even to the death of the cross, he alone free among the dead, having the power to lay down his life and the power to take it up again. For us he is both victor and victim before you, and therefore he is the victor because he is the victim. For us he is priest and sacrifice to you, and therefore he is the priest because he is the sacrifice. He takes us as servants to you and makes us your sons, he who was born of you and served us. Rightly then is my hope firm in him that you will heal all my infirmities, by him who sits at your right hand and makes intercession for us. Otherwise I would despair, for many and great are my infirmities, many, yes, and great. But your medicine is mightier than they are. If your word had not been made flesh and dwelt among us, we might imagine that he was far from any union with man and thus would despair of ourselves. Filled with terror at my sins and the burden of my misery, my heart was disturbed and I considered fleeing into the wilderness. However, you forbade me to do so and strengthened me, saying, quote, And Christ died for all, that those who might live, live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Behold, Lord, I cast my cares upon you, that I may live and consider the wonders of your law. You know my ignorance and infirmity. Teach me and heal me. He who is your only Son, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he has redeemed me with his blood. Let not the proud speak evil of me, for I meditate upon my redemption, eating, drinking, and communicating it. And poor man that I am, I desire to be filled with him among those who eat and are full, and those who seek the Lord shall praise him. Okay, so in this particular section from which we have just read, you'll notice that St. Augustine is very sensitive to how pride can be sneaky. We reference this in the last episode. It's also a line that features in the rule of St. Augustine, which we as Dominicans follow, namely, indeed, every other kind of sin has to do with the commission of evil deeds, whereas pride lurks even in good works in order to destroy them. What does St. Augustine mean by that? Well, okay, so typically when you sin, you recognize it as a sinful thing because it's a sinful act. It's like, oh, okay, you just slapped your sister. Not a good thing to do. It's like, well, I mean, could you justify that action? It might involve some mental gymnastics, or it just may have been the case that there was a fly in her head and the fly was carrying a sign that said, I am carrying a bloodborne disease. And you're like, have to slap it. Right. But the chances of that are exceedingly small. If you slapped your sister, probably not good. Whereas with pride, it's usually lurking under the surface of things that look really good. It's like you're putting money into the collection plate. Inside, you're thinking, I am better than everyone else in this building by this many dollars. It's like, oh my gosh. You know, you were doing a good thing. And then you had that thought and your intention, you know, kind of makes us to believe that this is not the virtuous act, which we thought it to be. And we can basically do that at every level of our human existence. 
So then, Father Jacob Bertrand, do I just take this as occasion to accuse myself of pride in all of my different activities, to give up really on trying to do good things because I know that pride is lurking around the corner? Should I just throw in the towel and, um, I don't know, eat cheese puffs or delicious chocolates and never leave home? Your thoughts? Yes. We've arrived. <laughs> That's what St. Augustine has been getting at through the entirety of the confessions for us to throw in the towel. Uh, yeah. Good job. All right. Well, that's it for season two. Uh, of course, kidding. Yeah. The, the sort of perniciousness of pride, the lurking reality, the sneakiness of pride, you know, St. Augustine cautions against, not because he's saying all is lost or, yeah, throw in the towel or it's not worth it, but because if we are to seek a remedy, we have to be aware of the illness. Um, we have to be aware of what is plaguing us. On a episode, a few episodes ago, I mentioned this sort of like in dealing with the temptations of the flesh for food, drink, and sex, there has to be a good deal of offense played too. You know, we have to prepare for those moments of temptation. So too with pride, you know, if, if it's just, if we're not prepared to be on guard against the enemy here, we're never, we're not going to react well because pride often catches us in, in a moment. You know, you can think too of like the stupid little things of like, holding the door for someone. And in that moment, you're kind of like, ooh, is anyone looking? You know, did I get noticed? And it's like, well, maybe. And that kind of like, you know, you kind of ruined it a little bit by seeking your own self-interest in it. So it's less of a sort of, we're done. You know, it's all lost. We're totally corrupt and, and much more of like, okay, this is a problem. It's a problem we all face, but there is a solution. We just seek it. We have to begin to seek it. So he kind of sets us up for that, I think. Yeah. And I think even as St. Augustine shows us a depth of insight, right, he's he's shown himself very sensitive to physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual considerations of every sort. I think he's also commending to us a kind of simplicity in our own Christian lives. Uh, you know, you've heard it said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Well, I think you could say something like, don't let your right brain know what your left brain is doing. Now, I don't know what type of activity is coordinated in the different hemispheres of your brain, but I mean to say that when you do a good thing, you can just do a good thing. And you might say to yourself, I'm not sure if I have pure intentions or unmixed motivations. Yeah, I mean, we all knew that that was the case. But oftentimes, when we focus too much on it, trying to root it out or trying to do our due diligence and cleaning it up, we create problems for ourselves. And I think that we can take refuge in a kind of simplicity. It's like, this is a good thing, so I'm going to do it. I think it's a good thing for me. I think it's part of my vocation. I think it's part of my life. Cool. Be about it. And the Lord will make you humble in due course. You're reading this book. You're thinking about these themes very deliberately. You're going before the Lord in prayer. You're asking to receive the grace that he dispenses in the sacraments, dot, dot, dot. So that gives us a kind of confidence that the Lord, who has begun a good work in us, will see it through to his completion. And St. Augustine also offers some nice encouragements here as to how that might look or how that might unfold. So he talks about rejoicing in the successes of men and sharing our own successes with others <clears throat> as a way by which to kind of overcome the pride and envy which might be lurking. And I think here of a passage in the Purgatorio where when Dante finds himself in the circle of the envious, one of the souls tells him, you know, here we no longer say mine and thine, uh, we say ours or genuinely, you know, ours. And that's, that's a kind of beautiful sentiment. And the soul there doesn't mean it in the sense that, yeah, here we just try to convince ourselves that it's great to share. Like we learned this lesson when we were five, but we didn't really absorb it. And now we're really learning this lesson. It's, it's more than that. It's a genuine recognition that the good of the other is my good because the other is mine and I am the others because by bonds of fellowship, friendship, by bonds of communion, we become in turn more perfectly members of the body of Christ. 
so yeah, I thought some of the the kind of advice that he has or some of the reflections that he has about overcoming pride were were beautiful in that regard. I don't know if you if there were particular things that struck you, Father Jacob Bertrand. Yeah, just in a sort of general way in reading it all um, or listening to it all, as you might have done, that we've talked about and St. Augustine talks about how, in a sense, we could say the simplicity of pride, you know, that it like sneaks in, it's lurking, it's there, you know, it doesn't take much for pride to creep in. It's it's kind of just ready to go. So to the simplicity of the remedy of, of Christ's offer of grace um, that abounds even more than the vice of pride. So yeah, being encouraged in that sort of way of thinking about Christ and we have to remember that we're never posed or we're never given a temptation for which or allowed a temptation for which we aren't given the grace and abundance to overcome. So it's a good reminder that because sometimes it's, it's just we get into the, the rhythm or the thought of like, I have to figure this out. And it's like, yeah, a bit, but like Christ is working. You know, we have to rely on Christ. Yeah, that, that stands out and that encouragement to me. Boom. All right. So as he progresses on in his examination, he does a kind of recap where he says, all right, we've been through the senses. We've been through the memory. We've been beyond. And here it sounds like he's making reference to a kind of conscience. He says to the Lord, I heard you commanding me, which is pretty cool. Um, because that'd be a, an early testimony to conscience as a distinct thing going on in the human mind and heart. And then he kind of sums up what he has been through in a, a battle between the elation of conversion, like, Lord, you called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness, and then the depression of bad habit, like, Lord, here I am meeting you in this new and very intimate and intense way, and yet I'm still dragging along this corpse weighed down by sin and vice, which just, ah, you know, can't prove itself wholly up to the task of being yours entirely. And so he's struggling with this, but then he finds in this threefold concupiscence that we made mention of in, in 1 John 2, a helpful way by which to explain. You know, we've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And on the basis of that, he's not too terribly scandalized by his own ongoing struggles. So thinking about the progressive nature of our own conversion, Father Jacob Bertrand, yeah, any takeaways here from St. Augustine or advice for a 21st century audience? Yeah, it's something about the humanity rings true here. You know, it's not just a fourth century versus a 21st century. You know, like our humanity is common. It's a thing. And, um, yeah, what stands out is that we can't approach our conversion and our fight against sin in a sort of strictly linear fashion because we, you know, over time we might see growth in things, but we're still going to struggle and there might be setbacks. And that doesn't mean that we're not, you know, pursuing the Lord as Father Gregory described earlier, you know, by by clinging to the sacraments, clinging to prayer, you know, availing ourselves of his grace. St. Augustine like testifies to this fact that, yeah, he still struggles. And we have to remember that there's no prerequisite of perfection before we're able to be loved by God. You know, we don't have to be rid of all of our temptation and and struggle before God loves us. And it's often through those crosses that we bear that we find our Lord. Those are often opportunities to be brought to him. So St. Augustine's mentioning and, and re-mentioning that, yeah, the struggle is still there and still real, even after his baptism, even after this outpouring of grace, um, there's a consolation in that, that it's like, even for this great saint. So... Yeah. And with the last pages of the chapter, he turns then to Christ. So who will be the mediator of this reconciliation, he asks, and he proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And he'll talk about how Christ is both like God and man, not like God as in like, you know, he's basically like, God. I mean, he is God, but like man in the sense that he genuinely takes our human nature and so builds a bridge between our condition of alienation and God himself. 
in whom we live and move and have our being. And I'll talk about how Satan fails as a candidate because Satan pretends to be like God and pretends to be like man, but fails in both regards. And so here he, he gives this beautiful kind of commendation of the example of Christ as uh, for our growth and humility, something to which all persons of all times have access, even before Christ's coming, because he's made known by the prophets and he's anticipated by the movement of salvation history, but obviously he's made most manifest and communicable in his incarnate life, but remains available to us in the church and in the sacraments, so that in following him, in his descent, as it were, we might hold fast to him and then be drawn up with him in his ascent. So yeah, there's a beautiful kind of theology here of conformity to Christ, of sharing in his sacrifice. He who is the priest and the victim and the God to whom the sacrifice is offered and who takes our human nature for whom, I mean, he takes our human state for whom the sacrifice itself is offered. So I think it's very beautiful that he ends this kind of general examination, this general confession with a confession of faith or a profession of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as the deliverer, as the redeemer, as the one through whom, in whom, by whom we are saved. So Brother Jacob Bertrand Final thoughts on on Christ as the capstone or crowning achievement of his confession. Yeah, I find some of the most annoying, th- what, I have so many pet peeves, I can't, they're not even pet peeves, <laughs> they're just like normal reactions to things, but something that would be on a list of pet peeves are people who propose problems and just like to point out problems without offering any sort of solution or anything like that. And granted, I, I fall prey to my own like annoying reaction anyways, because I do that often, but for St. Augustine has just walked us through in this book a whole sort of, what, through the whole way and different ways in which we might be tempted through the senses, through pride, through the mind, you know, all these things. But he also offers and reminds us of our solution, if we could call Christ that, you know, our our salvation. So it's this constant, um, what, back and forth between like, here are the problems that we might fall into. Be on guard. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be, you know, surprised by temptation and the struggle, but always returning us to to Christ. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, in my reading of it, it's kind of like, I kind of got like little anxious, like, oh gosh, there's a lot, like there's a lot to be on the lookout for, but then the return to Christ, it's like, okay, all right, like focus on Christ and, and that's it. And that's what we do as, as Christians, as disciples of the Lord, we focus on Christ and allow him to work. And the more that we do that and the more that we follow St. Augustine's lead, you know, sort of the better off we are. Yeah. Amen. And he returns to this image that we heard in book seven, of like feeding on this reality, which I think is a very immediate image, right? A very visceral image, a very bodily image. And it and it helps us to kind of translate the insight that you just described there, that it's just like, you know, show up for God. It's like, how do you show up for God? Well, in the Catholic dispensation, I mean, like receive his body and blood. So let not the proud speak evil of me, he says, for I meditate upon my redemption, eating, drinking, and communicating it. It's like, woo, baby. <laughs> Get down, Boogie. He's not saying like, yeah, you know, like I have made this very interesting, um, very abstract proposal as to what constitutes our redemption. Now I will share it with the um, very elite initiates who are capable of the... No, it's just, he's just like, eat it. Get after it, which I love. Um, so fear not, Christian, you have been provided with everything that you need in order to lay hold of the redemption, which Christ so desperately wants to impart. And St. Augustine has commended to us that fact. So that's what we have for you in this episode. Uh, Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics.